Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to Live Boldly with Sarah Shulton Kranz, a survivor, thriver, adventurer, and believer in all things possible. My mission is to guide others to live their life boldly, regardless of circumstances. I believe we all have the power to overcome and lead joy-filled, happy lives. Recorded from the trail or in my office, I share inspiring stories from everyday people because we all deserve to be heard. You will also hear from handpicked professionals ready to guide you beside me. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of Live Boldly. You will hear over these next two episodes from one woman and her name is Lisa Valtiera. She and I sat for almost three hours today and had the most powerful conversation about resilience and life that I have had in a very long time. Lisa has been uh, HIV positive since the year 1991. In these episodes, she shares everything from life to resiliency to overcoming to awakening and living a life that she loves today. Before I start talking about that, I want to share a few things with you. Please, if you have not gone in and subscribed to my newsletter, do so at sarahschultingkranz.com. You will be up to date on everything from the book release that is coming up on November 10th by Harper Horizon to book uh, launches and speaking engagements and upcoming programs. We are also accepting applications for our eight-week breakthrough coaching journey and five-day Grand Canyon retreat. It is co-ed. If you are interested in adventure, hiking, coaching, breathwork, meditation, transformation, awakening, and all the amazing things that lead to a better life, please do me a favor. Send me an email, sarah at sarahshultonkranz.com. Send me a DM. Let's get you hooked up with a 20-minute free consultation call to see if this is the correct breakthrough coaching journey and Grand Canyon retreat for you. Also, on that note, I would like to also announce that we are having a retreat in December. It is going to be a holiday retreat down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So if a co-ed holiday retreat sounds like something you would like to be a part of, also once again, send me a DM, a message, and I will sit down with you over a 20-minute consultation call and see if that is the right fit for you. So let's talk about Lisa. In this first episode, we are covering everything from the year 1991, where she found out that she is HIV positive, up until the year 2000. During that time frame, we talk about what it was like for her to get that first phone call, to face her family, to face her friends, to share her truth, to talk to her husband about all of this. We talk about what it was like for her to lose everything, to face death, and then also to have that moment of absolute awakening to what is possible post being in the hospital. It is a powerful conversation that you do not want to miss. Listen to it to the very end. It is a little bit longer than normal, but please do me a favor and grab your journal and your pen and your favorite drink because you will want to take notes. 
Like I said, this was an incredible conversation, and I hope that you feel as inspired post-listening as I did post-interviewing. Thank you for being here, and enjoy. Friends, I do want to warn you that due to the nature of this content, there is some strong language, and we do keep it real. Hey everyone, I am so excited to be sitting next to Lisa Veltiera. It is amazing to have you here, and I cannot even explain to you how excited I am to be talking to you about this particular subject, everything. Um, when I asked Lisa, how would you like me to introduce you? You said, Jane Doe with a cool story. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's it. So I want to actually um, let you all know that we're going to be doing this as a two podcast episode. So podcast one is going to be from 1991 to 2000 of your life-ish. Mm -hmm. Podcast two is going to be, the follow-up podcast is going to be from 2000 to today, which is 2000, what, what, 2020. 2020. What is it? 2020. It's 2020. <laughs> Time's flying so fast. The reason that I wanted to do this episode with you or to do this podcast with you is because your story is so deep. And one of the things that I believe so deeply in is sharing real people's stories. Because it's easy to look at the people around us, the the, um, the influencers, the people, right? Like all those people from Oprah to, you know, to her friends to whatever mm -hmm. and go, oh my gosh, look at them, look at their stories. But in reality, there's so much for us to learn from, from the everyday person. Eye callers like, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. and me, yeah. right? Like I consider myself to be that person where I overcame a lot as... Um, a trauma survivor, as a mom, as a spouse, now ex-spouse, as a, right. all the things. And um, I don't really see myself as any different than anybody else. And I also know that it's important for us as real people to share our own real stories so that other people can learn and grow from them as well. So when I heard your story, when you told me about your story, mm -hmm. this is how we met. I'm going to share all this with all of you really quick, and then we're going to dive in because this is freaking phenomenal having her here um it was at the TED talk mm -hmm. you came up to me when we were at dinner yep and what did you say I believe I said I a loved your story loved the way you presented it and loved the fact that you presented it because your story is not something that most people would feel comfortable sharing and yet you are so able to connect with people knowing that maybe their story isn't the same as yours, but the core issues are similar. Yeah. And we can all learn from that and see our humanity in that. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what was like, it just blew me away. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I have to talk to this woman. <laughs> and so we did. And now here we are. And here we are. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I want to talk, um, we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Um, your story touched me so much because it's one that, um, it's been, it's something that has, I'm trying to express even in words how deep that, um, that this story touches my own heart and soul for many different reasons, personal reasons. Um, it's a story of survivor. It's a story of you always having hope and always believing in yourself and always believing in reaching out for help mm -hmm. when you could. And knowing that when every 
odd was sitting there against you, you still persevered, which yeah. is huge. So let's start. Can we just okay, dive in? Absolutely. Let's dive so, in. So 1991 is interesting because that's the year that my son was born. Yeah. Um, and I was going through my own struggles back mm. in small town USA, Black Earth, <laughs> <laughs> like like having the child and, you know, and pe- that whole story, people not believing me and having to fight the police. And then here you are. And where did, yeah, I'm going to so have you take off. 1991, um, I got married that year to... A man, we were so deeply in love. I mean, we were crazy about each other. And so we got married in April of 91. And about six months later, we thought, you know, let's start planning for a family. So we went to this doctor who had been recommended by one of my husband's friends. And we just both want like a full physical, like run all the tests so that we know we're both healthy and we can start a family and we're not going to have any issues. and it was December when we did this it was a Saturday it was going to we were getting ready for our first married Christmas which we were super excited about we're gonna go get our Christmas tree that afternoon my husband was working at the shop I was cleaning the house and the phone rings and it's the nurse from the doctor's office and I'm like, oh, it's Saturday. That can't that be good. Can't be good. <laughs> She's in tears, by the way. In tears. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Why are you crying? And she tells me that I'm HIV positive. Wow. 1991, for those of you who either weren't alive or don't remember, HIV was a death sentence. There was no effective treatment. There was one drug that wasn't working. Wow. And I just remember thinking, holy fuck. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> what? I mean, it was like, I've never done drugs. I, I'm like, how did this happen? Never had a blood transfusion. Obviously, it was an ex-boyfriend. It wasn't, his husband was fine, thank God. But I just remember like falling onto the floor going how am I going to tell him how I mean I was just so beyond confused and devastated I mean devastated isn't even the word well yeah because you literally when somebody tells you that it's literally okay you're you're going to die in the next year. Just there, there's your right. sentence. Like, or in the next, you know, certainly, I wasn't even 30 yet. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if I'm going to see 30. Right. Wow. I mean, what the hell? And over the phone. Of over all the phone. Way, of all how. The wor- right. The worst possible way for somebody so, to deliver So, I mean, there's laws against doing things like that. This is before those laws were even enacted. Yeah. That's how early in the epidemic this was. And also being a woman, if I'd been a gay man, then I might have been more prepared for that news. Right. But no, I'm a college-educated, multilingual, career-going, you know, married, non-drug-using woman. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. How did this happen? I knew how to not get pregnant. I knew how to avoid other STIs. So why? So I just remember hanging up the phone. I'm bawling. And I called my husband at the shop, and he was a master mechanic, and he had his own automotive shop. And I said, honey, you got to come home now. He goes, are, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. You have to come home. Well, why didn't you just tell me? I'm like, no, you have to come home now. 
And it didn't even occur to me what his reaction might be. Because a lot of people have asked me since then, like, weren't you afraid that he would like leave you? And I'm like, no, why would he leave me? I'm fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also I knew he wasn't an asshole. Right. So I just knew that I had to tell him. He's my husband. Of course I have to tell him. Right. I need him. Well, and you're sleeping with him. Right. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, he's got to know. He's got to know. So he comes home. I tell him. And, of course, he's beyond upset. And the only thing we can really think of at this point is there go our family plans. Yeah. Wow. We can't have kids. Wow. I'll die. I'll leave them motherless. I'm not going to do that. And also, the rates of transmission were very high. It was like 30%. And they didn't understand the mechanism of fetal, uh, of maternal fetal transmission. So without that in place, I'm like, I am, there's no way we're going to have kids. So there went, like, with that one phone call, my life was turned not only upside down, but, like, it was just rolling down into this abyss. Right, because I can imagine that you get that phone call and not only you thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going, this is a death sentence. But it's now I have to tell my husband, now I have to tell my family, mm -hmm. now I have to tell my parents, there goes my thought process of having a family, right. there goes my career, there goes, there goes my, there goes my friends, right. who's going to understand this, right. there comes the judgment, the shame, and all Can't of the other things. Can't tell anybody at work, because right. they're going to judge you. <clears throat> all the other things come with it. Right. The criticism, the, oh, the judgment, what were you doing? What were you doing, right. And, and the insensitive comments of from medical professionals oh, saying sure. things like women like you don't get HIV and I felt like saying excuse me folks you're going to have to get used to my potty mouth but I'm the thought bubbles in my head were motherfucker I'm sitting right in front of you right of course women like me get HIV right it's right. like use your logic and they didn't realize how insulting that kind of because then the other side is so what kind of woman does and even if she is a sex-working, drug-using woman. Is she not deserving of compassion? Right. Right. Can you see me? Right. I mean, can you just extend compassion to people? Hold space and see me. Regardless of what their path is. Right. So all of that is like, oh, my God. And I remember, because it was right before Christmas, my brother had just lost a friend to AIDS, his college roommate, who was gay and decided not to tell any of his college friends, even though they all knew, but nobody talked about it. Nobody knew he was dying of AIDS, and my brother saw him, I think, in the hospital, and then the, the man died. Heartbreaking. So my brother was devastated. And my brother and I are, like, super close. We're 14 months apart, so we've always been the babies in our family. And I'm thinking, I have to talk to Greg. And it's interesting. That's my brother's name, and I'm sitting here listening to you talk about your brothers being so close to you. That's oh, my brother's name. Isn't that funny? That's so funny. The universe is Thank funny. Thank you, universe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, he comes over, and my husband and I are talking to him, and I tell him, my brother looks at me and goes, are you joking? I'm like, joking? Who would joke about this? Right. Like, I'm not joking. I know what you're going through already. Why would I? No, that's, that would be beyond cruel. And it would make me a supreme asshole if I were to, I mean, God. Massive supreme. Right. <laughs> like, anyway, so he knew, but we decided to not tell my family before Christmas because Merry Christmas, everyone. You know, we weren't going to ruin right. their holidays. So we waited until after the new year. And you know, I knew my family was going to be fine. I knew they were going to be super supportive. 
um, because we grew up here in LA. You know, AIDS was around. Everybody knew somebody with it. My sister's facialist was dealing with it. Um, you know, it wasn't going to be an issue. The only person who I knew was going to have some judginess about it was my mom. And she had asked to come to one of my doctor's appointments because she was really confused. She was just like, I don't believe this. And I'm like, Mom, I, I don't want to believe it either. But it is true. They've run, rerun the test, and there is no mistake. But she wanted to go to the doctor. Then I was like, fine, come with me. On the way back, she asks me, well, how many men have you slept with? Wow. Oh, man. I'm like, Mom, I said, none of your business. Wow. I said, apparently, the wrong one. The wrong one. That's all you need to know. And don't ever ask me again because it doesn't matter. I was, I was livid. Livid. She never asked me again, but I'm like... Does it, why does it matter? And you know, the snarky part of me wanted to say, how many would make you comfortable? Right. <laughs> or a thousand. I mean, you know, it's like really. Or turn it back. How many have you slept with? Right. I don't know. Actually, I did know. <laughs> I knew funny. how many she slept with. She told me one she day. Did. I'm like, ah! <laughs> but at any rate, I'm like, Mom, I you're not asking me because you really care about my sexual well-being right you care because it's a prurient curiosity and that's not okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know we got past it but i'm like oh this is gonna be happening forever and so that year was you know 1992 was horrendous and the next few years you know luckily i got sorry folks i have to back up the good news was that i got diagnosed really early because I wasn't sick yet. Mm. And, you know, my immune system was still super healthy. You know, there was nothing else wrong with me. I mean, if it, as I used to joke with one doctor, if it weren't for this HIV thing, I'd be totally healthy. <laughs> because you didn't, you, you didn't, you didn't feel it within you. Right. It wasn't, you don't like, feel you it. You don't feel it. It's, it was it's just, not a cold. It's not no. a cough. It's not a pain. It's not a nagging anything. You don't feel any different. All you know is that this virus is replicating in your body at a billion a day and it's eating up your immune system cell by cell. Wow. And so I don't know if anybody remembers uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Thurber, but it's a short story, wonderful short story. And Walter Mitty goes off into these little reveries where he becomes a hero in his life because his life really sucks. And the soundtrack for him is pocket a pocket a pocket a pocket. And then he goes off into these daydreams. Well, my soundtrack was going to die, going to die, going to die. Every day. Every day. And there was nothing I could do. Nothing I could do. There wasn't a medicine I could take. There wasn't a shaman I could see. Nothing. It was like sitting on a railroad track waiting for the train to come get you. Every single day. And you have people sitting there in judgment thinking, how did you get this? Right. And what were you doing? Right. I'm like, asshole, I was in my 20s. I was hot. Who wouldn't want to have sex with me? (laughs) I mean, who wasn't gorgeous in their 20s, right? But the other thing about it is that back then, it was, there was so, there was so much judgment just simply on the disease. Oh my God. It wasn't only about the judgment of, 
who actually contracted the disease. It was judgment on the disease. Right. Like the like as like if the disease deserved is, it. Right. The people that got it deserved it. And it's as if the disease was only attracted to gay men typically. I mean, back then it was right. gay men and drug users. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just want to hold right here and remind people that take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Be careful. Yeah. When you are with other men, other women, please be careful. Use a condom. Because and this don't use oils. They break condoms. Right. And it's and it's very interesting though because you know, back then we weren't told stuff like no. this. No. Not only that, but I remember, I mean, you were out in LA, I was in Black Earth, Wisconsin, but <laughs> small town <laughs> farming community. Well, right, like we didn't <laughs> talk about this stuff. But what I do, well, I, I, that said, I mean, this this did, this is why it does touch me a little bit, because I do remember when I was raped, and I, w- I do remember where I was dri- riding down the road, thinking to myself, my God, do I even, not only am I pregnant, but do I have something? Right. And I remember, I, it's just wild, because I remember thinking to myself, could this get any worse? Could this get any worse? Because I was already judged upon. I was shamed upon. I was all these things. And then it's like, you don't even know what else is in your body because right. it's 91. And I wasn't even tested, quite frankly. I don't even think they tested me for that. They I don't didn't. think they did. I don't think they did. I could be wrong, yeah. but I don't think they did. Right. There were a lot of things that happened that I either knew about or didn't know about. Right. Um, and so my point is, though, is that we just didn't talk about this stuff back then in 91. Right. No. Just, and nobody also the did. whole political, the politis, the politicization yeah. of AIDS. And, and, and frankly, thank God for the, for the gay community because they galvanized and they advocated and they demanded attention, which is wonderful because they saved my life. If it hadn't been for that community, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. But... Where the and I blame the, the administration at the time, they made it such a sec, you know, such a, an issue about gays. Like it's not about anybody's sexual preferences or the way they are. It's a it's an STI. Yeah. And it's transmitted from blood to blood, and a few others. You know, I'm not going to go into the whole science of it, but bottom line is, it's an infection. Treat it as a medical issue and not a moral one. And that's what killed people. Yeah. Yeah. And for that, I will always be pissed off. <laughs> yeah. As, as you have a right to be. <laughs> but I, I get pissed off about health inequities in general. Right. And that's a whole other issue. Right. Right. Well, of course. And, and it's... There, with back then, there was just so much... There was, it, same... I mean, there's so many things back then that... Yeah. that Thankfully, we now can look at right. with a different mind right. and a different mindset and a different heart and a different soul and a different spirit and everything yeah. because it's we see it differently. Um, so let's move on into what was it like for you sharing this news with people? Who did you share this yeah. news with? It was hard. So I shared it with my close friends because I knew them. I knew they were not going to reject me or stop seeing me. So I was super fortunate that the friends that I've had in my life have all been amazing. Nobody, I didn't lose any friends over this. That's and fantastic. if there were acquaintances, they probably wouldn't have been told. But then I always figured 
you don't like me, I probably don't like you, so it's a zero-sum game, so we're even. And I'm good. But my heart was not broken over anybody's judgment of, of people that were right. in my life. Right. So that was that was very fortunate for me. I know, of course, we all know other people who lost their families who wouldn't be allowed in the house kind of a thing, and that is heartbreaking. I was super, super fortunate that none of that happened to me because it would have been really hard. Yeah. And, you know, I remember my husband had a snap-on account, and the guy came to pick up a check. And I was doing some advocacy work, some minor thing, and for whatever reasons, the idea, the subject of HIV came up. And he's in my house. And he says, oh, well, those people should have tattoos on their arms. Oh. And he didn't know my story at all, because why would he... he He's not wow. in his life. But I'm sitting there, and I said, okay, we're going to have a teachable moment here. And I just asked him why. He goes, well, so that we can know. I said, why do you need to know? Well, so we can, you know, n not get it. I said, well, do you know how it gets transmitted? He, he goes, yeah. I said, so sex or a blood transfusion or a needle, sharing needles, do you do any of those things with people with HIV? He goes, well, no. And he was thinking only of the gay thing. Right. And he goes, well, I'm not gay. I said, okay, so then your chances of getting HIV are zero. So why do you need to know who has it? Well, so we know. I said, why do you need to know? Well, so we know who's gay. I'm like, okay, that's weird. And so he, he's going, I'm asking him these questions. And I finally said, why do you care about whether gay people have HIV or not? Other from not, you know taking out the humanistic side of it. Right. He goes, well, what, what I think about what they do is disgusting. And I'm like, okay, let's. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. I said, why do you think about other people's sex lives? He goes, well, I, I just do. And I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, because I'm really confused. I said, I'm a heterosexual woman. I honestly don't think about what lesbians do because I'm just not interested. I said, so it doesn't bother me what right. other people... I said, let me ask you another question. I said, do you believe that adults, consenting adults, can do whatever they want to in the privacy of their own homes? He goes, yeah. I said, so then why do you care what two other people are doing, male, female, 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 male, male, what do you care? Well, and he's getting all flustered. And I said, I think you really need to look at that. Yourself. Yeah. I said, because I, yeah, I think you've got some stuff to work through. I said, yep. and here's another thing I want to ask you. I said, of all of your customers, I am sure that at least one of them is gay. He goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I really do have a, cust a customer who's gay. I said, is he a good customer? He goes, oh, yeah, he's one of my best. Pays me on time every single month, buys a lot of product. I said, okay, has he ever bothered you? Has he ever approached you? He goes, well, no. I said, so then why do you care if he's gay or not? So the only time any of us ever needs to know about somebody else's sexual preferences is if we actually want to have sex with them. Right. It's the only time it matters. Right. He goes, hmm, you've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> Did you ever tell him about your, you never told him? No, I never told him. It wasn't any of his business. I didn't want to have right. sex with him, that's for sure. <laughs> Why would I tell him? Well, and he wasn't in. And he wasn't in our lives. It wasn't like he was going to be coming over to the house correct. and having Sunday dinner. Correct. And I think it's interesting because one of the things that you bring you bring up a really good point is that it's that whole projection thing too. Mm -hmm. What? Why are we so afraid of certain things? Right. When right. they're not even going to affect us. Right. 
right? It's yeah. like, I, I'm not, uh, why, why, why be afraid of something that's not even going to affect us? Right. Yeah. The on, and the only other time I think that I got really annoyed with one of my sisters. She's, st- you know, the whole transmission still people were very very afraid well it's education yeah, right goes and, back to education and, you as know well. can you share food can you share utensils i mean there were people i knew whose families would ha- give them their own set of dishes and nobody else was allowed to even wash it yes so you know i didn't experience anything like that but i was babysitting one of my nieces one day and i've got a whole bunch of them and my sisters i was sharing a cookie with my niece and my sister got upset about that. Well, I blew up because she asked me not to share. I said, do you realize that if it were that easy to transmit, everybody would have it. Right. It would be like the common cold. I said, and do you honestly think that I would for one second put anybody else at risk? I said, again, what kind of an asshole do you think I am? Right, right, right. <laughs> so we got over it and she's like, okay, you have a point because she's not stupid. She was operating from fear mm-hmm. and I had to learn that that is where most people operate on a daily basis wow this taught you a lot oh yeah <laughs> the universe kicked me in the ass in so many ways yeah so did you so so this first year okay so 1992 mm-hmm. this is what it was like going to yeah. 1992. It was like this for the next several years. For the next several years, this is this was your daily basis. Your daily basis was in and out of, I'm dealing with people that think HIV is attached to a whole different set of person than me. Mm-hmm. I actually have this. I don't know how long I'm going to live. Mm-hmm. My entire life has shifted, so now I'm not even going to have my future as I thought. Right. I'm having my kids taken from me. I'm having my possibilities taken from me in my career like all Everything. this future gone right out okay the door. so this is your daily life my identity so here's how I felt right your identity I felt like suddenly the real me was like on a kite string above me just floating and I'm watching my body me going through the daily motions but feeling so disconnected from the identity that I thought I had created Wow. That would be PTSD. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. But that's how it felt. Yes. It I, felt like, when can I... Can relate. I, yeah, I kept asking myself... I've never myself, had anybody say it like yeah, that, though. But I felt like I asked myself, when can I jump back into my life? Right. You know, when yes. can I just get back to my life? Yes. I'm, you know, I've got a great degree. I, I'm smart. I'm, you know, I know I can do life. Kind of, that was the old me. And then suddenly... I'm not going to have a life to do. Yeah. And it was surreal. So I once had somebody tell me that, that PTSD was like, and let me ask you if this, if this, if you can relate to this and for any of you out there, this is a really good analogy. When you have for you, Mm -hmm. it was the phone call for me. It was, um, well, it was also various times in my life. Once when I found out I was pregnant, and the other time was um, when I found out about my husband. Mm -hmm. It was like an earthquake came through, and you're sitting there holding on, and you're watching your entire life all, if you can imagine, like every dream is a building, Mm -hmm. every thought is a sidewalk, every 
past, yeah. you know, happiness moment is, you know, a, a statue that's in the, standing there and it just obliterates. Yeah. And you're just Turns standing there. Dust. It's dust. And you're sitting there. Then, right, it's like the tsunami comes in post-earthquake and it's mm-hmm. the emotions that come in. And the emotions keep coming in and out right. and in and out. And it's carrying all of this this carnage mm-hmm. back out to sea. And you're still standing there like, what the hell right. is this? And there's no outlet. And there's no outlet. Because I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Right. Couldn't talk to my That's husband. how I was. Because he was big, strong, you know, silent type. And I knew he was dealing with stuff, but he didn't want to talk to me about it because I was the problem. Yeah. So yeah. how can he, as a loving person, say, yeah, you're my problem. I love you, but I also hate you. I, mean, I have a feeling that that's what was probably going through his head. Well, but he never told me. Correct, and and you know I can imagine that I can mm-hmm. I can imagine in different varying ways. And here's the other piece to it too: it's you you don't have anybody to talk to, right? Because nobody will relate, right? Who the hell's gonna relate to exactly. you? Exactly. I mean, what am I like, gonna do? Call my family and go? Yeah, I I feel really sucky today. Right. What are they gonna do about it? Right. And why put it on them? Because right. that's a selfish thing in my in my mind. That's a selfish thing to do. They're not paying to do that. And yet you need help. And right. Yet you need help. And I didn't get any mental health care. My doctor had given me, like, a card. But, you know, I'm Latina. We do not go seek well, help. I'm Catholic. Yeah. We and don't and I'm, I'm a Latina Catholic. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Double, 12 years of Catholic school. Damn! You know? You do not go see a shrink. But, you know, it was just, it didn't even occur to me because I'm thinking I should be able to handle this. And I should, you know, I just got to keep going one foot in front of the other. But what was happening in those years between 91 and 95 was it, it was like I was circling this drain with that soundtrack in my head, going to die, going to die, going to die. And I'm like that little marble that if you spin it in yeah, a I sink, know exactly you know, it starts as shoom, shoom, and, and it's circling and circling. And I'm getting more and more disconnected from life. Were you, uh, were you taking meds during this time then? No. So here's an interesting thing. AZT was out when I got was diagnosed in 91. After a few weeks, I might go to the doctor and he says, I need you to take this. I'm like, mm, but I'm not sick because I was still really healthy. My T cells or my immune system was still very robust. I'm not going to go into the details. And But I thought, fine, you're the doctor. You know, even though I'm thinking I've got doubts about this. But I took it for a week. Now, what people may not know or remember is that the doses were massive. Yes, they were. So every side, and I was, I still am 5'1". I was weighing probably what I am about now, like 112. And they didn't test any of those drugs on women. Certainly nobody my size. Oh, wow. So they had no idea how a woman would react to these drugs or how anybody with my stature would react. So, everything tasted like aluminum foil. My lips were numb. I was nauseous all the time. I mean, after a week, I went to his office and I said, I am not taking that. I said, first of all, I just saw Diane Sawyer saying that the data is saying that nobody is living a day longer with this stuff. I said, and it's making me sick and I'm not sick. I said, you know it's not. Why would you recommend something that doesn't work? That's, that's crazy talk. Wow. And he's arguing with me saying, but this is all we have. I said, well, it's not good enough. 
it's still not working just because it's all you have you still have nothing I'm like what am I like did I walk through the looking glass what the hell so I mean I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and I said at this point you and I know about the same amount of information you have an MD behind your name I don't but I'm not stupid and I can read Wow. and I'm not doing this I said I will wait until something better comes out so <laughs> he's like damn her I am just, so you did. I, I refused. So what happened? Did you end up in the hospital? I ended up in the hospital. So, well, the next drug that came out was 3TC. Yeah, I remember that. They were giving, you know, AZT and 3TC as double combination. Again, I'm following the news. It's not working. So, but again, he's saying, Lisa, I need you to take this. I'm like, nope, not going to do it. And he's frustrated as hell. I said, I don't care. I'm fighting for my life. Right. You've got a bunch of patients that you have to manage and you have to you know, do what you feel to do basically to assuage your conscience that you're doing the best that you can, but it's not good enough. I said, and I'm still not sick. When I get sick, hopefully something will be better. Lo and behold, the universe provides. Mm. Because in 1995, by then, I'd blown through jobs because I was just, again, I'm that marble circling the drain that voice in my head of going to die is getting louder and louder. I'm getting more and more isolated because I still hadn't talked to anybody else living with HIV. I didn't know one soul. There were some support groups, but they were for people with life experiences that were so different from mine that I knew that I would not feel comfortable and I would present a person that they, they'd be probably looking at me like, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? Right, right. It just, it wasn't a More fit. judgment. It's right. just more judgment. So and who I'm needs like, that? who needs that? So it's, you're, you're in survival mode. Right. So mid 95, I'm not doing well. And I begin to feel that something is wrong physically. I'm like, uh oh, this is about, and knowing the, the natural progression of the disease, it would be, have been about the time that I should start getting sick. So go to the doctor, of course. My T cells are low, lower, and I'm just not feeling right. But there's still nothing. There's still only 3TC and AZT, and I know that's not working. So again, why take something that doesn't work? That makes no sense. So by December of that year, I was really sick. I mean, and it was like between July and October, I plummeted and I remember going to UCLA. My mom was really sick that year as well and she needed a PET scan. So I took her and I'm waiting for her and it was gonna be like a three hour wait. So I thought I should go see this clinic that I've heard about and it's in the basement. It's like walking through a friggin' rabbit's warren trying to find this thing, but I find it. And I remember walking in and there's this lovely gentleman sitting behind that little window. And I said, I need help. I said, I'm HIV positive. And that was the first time I had ever said it to a stranger. And I burst into tears and I'm like, oh my God, where did this come from? I had no idea how hard saying that was to a stranger. And he looks at me, and I still know this gentleman. He is a lovely man, and he's still at the clinic that I still go to. But 
His name is Mike. And he goes, he reaches out, touches my hand and goes, hold on. I'll be right back. I'm going to get somebody to, to talk to you. And he finds the social worker and she comes out and pulls me into her office. And it was like this watershed. And suddenly I feel like, oh my God, I can actually say this. And they're not going to look at me with, you know, that recoiling glance that I have seen people do. And that was the beginning of your healing, my healing. Wow. Okay. And I had no idea how hard it was to ask for help because wow. we don't ask for help in our family. That is an Achilles heel that is, you know, it's so not a good thing. held on to this from 1991. And when was this? 1995. 1995. Late 95, 90, almost 96. So it's almost, almost mm -hmm. for four years you held on to this and you never even said out loud to a stranger, mm -mm. I'm HIV positive. Nope. Wow. I just had to keep working. I had to, you know, I had to just... Keep going. Keep smiling. Right. Keep doing the things. Yeah. Just to survive on a daily basis. Yeah. And it wasn't, of course, that my whole life was miserable. Obviously not. No, of there course There were joyful not. moments. Of course. But it was still that the big elephant on my shoulders. I mean, I can mix up all the metaphors you want, but it was, this is not going to end well. <laughs> can we just take a moment, though, and also give you... So much, uh, so many, I mean, I, I like uh, the fact that you're sitting here today and it's 2020, mm -hmm. 15 years later, and you're saying this on a podcast. Did you ever in a million years think that someday I'm going to be able to do this to share so that I can help other people? At that time, no. Right. Absolutely not. I honestly didn't think I would see 30. How old were you at this point? At that point, I was 34. 32. Wow. You're young. Yeah, young. And, you know, every year was like, whew, I made it. Right. And this was, the, Brian White was around that during that time too, he right? He was still, I can't remember when he died, but yeah, he was still around. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you that don't remember Brian White, he was a young, yep, bless his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was twelve years old, right? Yeah. And he and he had um, HIV, mm -hmm. and then he passed away. And I, I just that he was amazing. Yeah, he he gave so much hope. He did to the world. We still have Ryan White funding. Yep, it's named after him. Yep, one one child who made such a big yeah. difference. Yeah, and speaking yet, out, right, and just and, and hugging people and saying, "I'm I'm a child. I'm just right, a child. I'm just a kid. Like I'm literally, I'm just a kid." Yeah. I'm just a kid. Don't, don't be mean to me. Just right. see me as being the kid. Like I didn't ask for this. Nobody, and that's the thing. Nobody does. Nobody does. I used to wonder: Do people think that anybody living with HIV just wakes up in the morning one day and go, "Hey, I think I'm going to change my life and I'm going to get me some HIV"? <laughs> Why not? Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. I know. I, I, and here I am in like this little town, like watching, <laughs> watching the whole Ryan White thing and thinking yeah. to myself, that kid out in LA, like I was obviously older than him at that time, yeah. but just my heart went out to him because I just kept thinking, I can't imagine what it would be like to be 12 years old and to have this and 
his friends and just wanting to just be loved and to play sports and do right. all the things that 12 year old kids do just to have a life just to have a life just to have a life um so yeah, yeah. wow yeah, so by the wow. time I got to UCLA, I wasn't doing great. I had lost weight, so I was now like maybe 105, 102 pounds, somewhere around there, which is okay, an okay weight for somebody my height. But for me, that's skinny. Yeah, that's still skinny, girlfriend. That's, that's, that's not a whole lot of weight. No, that's <laughs> you skinny. You don't have a whole lot of room that's skinny. to go. And I was, again, just like something's not right. You know, and when you pay attention to your body, you know when something's not right, even though you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. You know it's not a cold. You know it's not a, you know, a bladder infection or something like this. But you just know that something ain't right. Yep. So I was hoping when I went there that I would get on a clinical trial because I thought that is my only hope of getting something that is better than AZT and 3TC. And so the social worker connected me with the physician, and I did get on a clinical trial. And I thought, okay, now I'm getting somewhere, right? right? I'm in the right place, thank God. And thank God that my parents came to this city and settled yeah. here. Because yeah. if I had been in anywhere else, like even outside of L.A., I would have died. Yep. Because nobody would have tested me, and that's the thing. The universe is amazing because if I hadn't been tested in 91, no one would have thought to have tested me when I actually did get sick because I didn't fit the, and I'm using air quotes, the profile. Right, right. So lucky me. <laughs> Yay, lucky me. I just, it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, Midwest, yeah, nobody would have thought of... I'll be honest, like even myself, when I found out about, you know, when I was like, oh, getting tested or whatever, thinking, did they test me for, for HIV after I found out I was pregnant and I didn't know if I actually, and I was like, well, I wouldn't get it. I mean, right. Like, why would I get it? Right. Like, like, why would know. they even test me? I'm sure I'm fine. Cause you have a super vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Cause why? I mean, and here you are at the exact same freaking time. Yeah. Fighting all of the, the, um, I don't even, I, like fighting what I was sitting here over, you know, when I'm sitting in the Midwest thinking, oh, this never right. would happen. This wouldn't happen to me. Everybody thinks it's not going to happen to me. And you're fighting the does. discrimination that yeah. like, uh, actually it does. Yeah. Wow. And here we are today. I know. So continue on though. So you, so you went into the hospital. No, not you yet. Did, not yet. So, end of 95, I'm on this clinical trial, and I'm seeing amazing doctors, but I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. By January of 96, I had lost more weight. I was down to like 96 pounds. I, was, I had what was called age-related wasting. I remember that. Yeah. So not doing well at all. I mean, and you lose muscle mass. You don't lose fat. I mean, yes, you do, but you lose muscle mass. And right. without muscles, we can't live. So I'm beginning to look like a bag of bones. And I had a hemoglobin. I was severely anemic. My hemoglobin level, which is the red blood cells that carry oxygen throughout our body, for those who don't know, 
had dropped to maybe six. A healthy hemoglobin level for women is anywhere between like 11 and 15. Right. Yeah. So now I had less than half of what a person should have. So my skin, I mean, I looked like the friggin' walking dead. I was pale. I mean, you know how when you lower your eyelid and you see the pink in yeah. there? It wasn't pink. Are you still married at this time too? Yes, I was still married. Wow. So hemoglobin so having such a low hemoglobin level raised my resting heart rate to 120 beats a minute. Whoa. Just sitting there doing nothing. Cuz my body's like got to get the oxygen through it. So that's going on. Then I had beginning stages of pneumonia because my now by this time my immune system is gone. Right. You have I can't fight anything. So I'm getting really, really sick. I also had what's commonly called valley fever. Yep. It's a fungal infection and it's very common, but it kills healthy people. You can imagine what it was doing to me. So I had nightly night sweats and people think oh I get warm at night I sweat no 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 no. it was as if I had dunked the sheets in a tub of water that's how much I would sweat I used to have a stack of dry sheets next to the bed and as I sweat through one set of you know the flash sheet that I would like make like a sleeping bag so I wouldn't have to make the whole bed Uh I would toss that on the floor and put another one in and sweat through that one sometimes three a night horrendous and they couldn't figure out what it was they kept treating me for a bacterial infection because the symptoms are similar. They didn't even think to test me for valley fever. Wow. So one night I was getting sheets and I didn't have enough by the bed. So I had to stumble over to the linen closet. And as I was trying to pull a sheet out from the closet, I, I must have fainted and made a noise because my husband caught me before my head actually hit the wall, thank God. And we get back to bed, and he calls the doctor first thing, like as soon as he knows that office is open, and he's yelling at this guy. Tells him what happened, and the doctor's like, well, I don't know what to do. And my husband finally said, well, if this were your wife, where the fuck would she be? And the doctor obviously said, and this wasn't the study doctors, this was my insurance guy. He says, well, he, she'd be in the hospital. And my husband yells, then why in the fuck isn't my wife in the hospital? I oh mean, my he, gosh. Right? I mean, like. The rage. The rage. The rage. Absolutely. I can't rage. even. That's a whole nother. I can't even imagine what he was going through. Yeah. Because the, the insurance doctor, because the, 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 the study doctors can only do so much. They can only work on what's study related. It's right. not their job to right. follow me through the rest of my life. Right. My insurance doctor, I was seeing him. He should have known. He knew what my lab values were. So I'm falling through these cracks because he's thinking UCLA is taking care of me. UCLA is thinking my doctor's on the ball. I'm falling. I'm falling through the cracks. And like I'm literally, dying. literally falling, falling through, through the, the cracks. cracks. So that was first week of February 1996 when that happened, and that was the first time. I met an infectious disease doctor that wasn't study related. So I get admitted to the hospital and they tell me I need a blood transfusion. I'd never, I'd never stayed in a hospital before. Again, I was super healthy. I'd only been to visit like when my nieces and nephews were being born. 
I'd seen my mom when I was a kid for something she had to do. So, but again, I'm like, oh, hospital says that's, they're scary to me. I think they're scary to everybody. And we finally get to the hospital. I get admitted and the head nurse is sitting on the bed and explained to me what's going to happen in this transfusion. And I could sense that the nurses, the other nurses really didn't want to come in my room. And of course I had a private room because they don't put infectious disease patients together, which makes sense. Right. But I could sense this like, we don't want to go in there. Just in case. <laughs> She's the boogeyman, you know? And, but this nurse, she was wonderful and she's tapping on my arm. Now my arms were skin and bones. And when you're that weak, the slightest pressure is painful. So she's tapping on my wrist to get the veins to come up because there's not a whole lot going on anymore. I mean, I, by this time I'd also stopped eating. Wow. I couldn't eat anymore. I could like a piece of toast was a full meal. The smell of food would make me vomit. I mean, it was not good. So she's tapping, tapping, and it felt like a sledgehammer. It felt like she was banging on me, and she wasn't. She wasn't, you know, she was doing nothing wrong, but she had to get these veins to come up. So they put in this huge needle with the valves that they can transfuse the blood. I had four units of blood, which is apparently half a person's blood volume. It's a lot of blood. And I was there for a week and still not really getting better. Yes, my color came back up. Hemoglobin was up. But the night sweats and the 105 degree temperature and the resting um, heart rate were still all wrong. Night sweats were going on, 105 degrees at least two, three times a day. Um, vomiting still. You're literally facing death. Yes. And yet I didn't believe, I didn't know it. I kept thinking, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. Did anybody be a better tell day. you? Did anybody say... Just so you know, you were this sick. No. And I'm glad they didn't because I might have believed them. Right. And I might have given up. Because the day I went into the hospital, I remember sitting up in bed and I was put fresh jammies on. I took a shower, which I had to do sitting down because I couldn't even stand in the shower anymore. <laughs> and I remember thinking, holy shit hospital that's serious stuff blood transfusion damn so even then you weren't like okay i'm i i was beginning to recognize that it was serious but i didn't think i was that close to death but yet i remember thinking i haven't i don't practice religion anymore you know 12 years of catholic school cured me of religiosity but it still left me with a very spiritual connection with whatever you want to call a higher power but i thought if there were ever a time to pray, this might be it. Wow. <laughs> and I remember asking for three things. One was the will to live. Mm. Because honestly, when you can't make a piece of toast, when you can't stand in a shower, when you can't talk and breathe at the same time because it's absolutely exhausting, death seems kind of nice. Right. It's like it would, and it would have been so easy. Just to let go. Just to let go. I just had to, I would have had to have done nothing. I would have, I could have just said, you know what? Save the resources. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't want a blood transfusion. Just, just, just make me comfortable. So I needed the will to live because something told me 
I'm not quite ready yet. That is something that needs to be um, stopped on for a second. Because okay. the will to live is everything. Mm-hmm. And the will to not... There's a difference between life and living. Yes. And we can all just simply lead a life or... We can all make a choice, a resonant choice, to actually live Mm -hmm. that life. Yeah. And the one thing that you did throughout your entire journey thus far that I've heard is that you lived it on your terms. You didn't take the drugs when you knew that they weren't going to work. You spoke your piece. You had used your voice. You shared with those people that you needed to. Then you did share when you... Perhaps didn't want to, but needed also really needed, to, needed to, where it was like, all right, I see it. Now I actually have to use my voice in a different way. Yeah. But every step of the way, you chose to live your life on your terms, which is, that right there is huge. Yeah. That's the will to live. Yeah. And I was making the distinction between existing and choosing to live. Correct. Yep. Because to me, like, amoebas exist. Yes, yes. I don't want to be an amoeba. Yes, yes. So that will tell I'm like, God, please help me because I need need, need you to intervene here. There are times in our life, and I wrote about it in my book, where I'm like, I need some help. Because even I am like, rock bottom, do I even want to be here? exactly. And I do want to be here, but I need help to... But not like this. Like, I want to be here. My spirit wants to stay, but my body at this point is like, Uh what the hell? Right. So... So, so calling upon that is a huge, that's a, that I just wanted to like stop for a moment and just, just reflect on that because that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So what was number two? So number two was give me the strength to do what I'm going to need to do to live. Hmm. Because I'm thinking if I can barely get out of bed and get to the bathtub. Right. I'm going to need a whole lot more strength. And I never believed that life was easy. I'm not one of those like, eh, well, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Life is challenging, and as it should be. I mean, life is, life is hard. I'm okay with that. But I didn't have the strength to do bare minimum life. So I'm literally praying, thinking, I am going to need the physical and the mental fortitude to get through whatever is coming next. Mm-hmm. Because hospitals scare the crap out of me. So I'm like, yep, I'm going to need some strength and I can't do this by myself because in my logical mind, if I had the strength, then I wouldn't be sitting here waiting to go to the hospital. Right. And it was beginning to dawn on me too that the isolation was killing me. So I'm sitting there going, okay, so that's number two. Now... There's one more thing that I really need, and that was to be put on the path, on the right path to life. Wow. Because all I could think of was everything up to now, not leading to a healthy life. (laughs) I'm on the wrong road. It's like getting a road map and you're on the wrong continent. (laughs) The map you got in your hand is not going to get you where you need to go. Those are my three things. I'm like, please, 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 please help me with those three things and I will do what I need to do to handle the rest. 
I don't need a magic miracle burning bush kind of thing. I don't believe in those anyway. I just need some help. Give me the three one more time. The will to live. Yep, will to live. The strength to do what I needed to do to live. Okay. And being put on the right path. Yeah. Dang, girl. And you're young and you have this. Did you ever anticipate that you were going to, when you talk about being put on the right path, did you also want that? I'm, I'm thinking about when I was 17 and I knew that someday I wanted to share my story where I didn't want girls to think that they were alone. Right. I mean, I obviously had to go through a lot more because I didn't, I mean, that was small compared to where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. Um and I knew that there was something to be used with my experience. Did you, did you have that same kind of thought process? I had an inkling, like a purpose behind it. What is yeah? The there reason? wasn't one yet. Correct. But what I'm saying, like, did you were you asking for that when you also no. said put me on the right path? Was it also for something like that? No, the path was really wherever it may lead, as long as it leads to life. I had no idea, or even. Um, a wish of where I thought it could lead. It was really just get me out of this mess. Right. And I will put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, with that strength, if I can get that strength, then I will do whatever I need to do to live. But I got to be doing it in the right environment. And, yeah. you know, in the right town. <laughs> yeah. Get me on the right road and I'll handle it. I promise. Because I'm generally a good map reader, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a beautiful soul. I just... <laughs> I just, I, it's just, it's just the thought of, of having you in that state, it breaks my heart because you're just such a beautiful soul. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. You know, it's so funny because so many times people have throughout, especially in those years, people would say things like, well, you know, you could have been hit by a bus. And I'm like, motherfucker, this is the bus. The bus not only hit me, but it backed up and ran over me again. I'm like, what are you talking about? You can't even hit by a bus. People, people used to say that to me, too. I'm like, God, that's so stupid. <laughs> At least you've got, I'm like, really? You're comparing me to, I mean, right. really? I lost any chance of having kids. And by this point, my marriage is a mess. I was bankrupt. I lost the home I had bought. I lost my career. Do you really think that? In fact, I kind of wish I had been hit by a bus because then this would be done. (laughs) I totally get it. I totally get it. I was like, oh, you people are so stupid. And they and they thought they were meaning well. They do, but like, oh, just stop talking. People, they don't, they don't realize it until all of a sudden they're there having the same thing happen to them. Right. It's like, can can we just show a little bit of compassion and quit comparing me to that person? Like, just let me, let me be me for where I'm at right now in my life. Exactly. Just hold space. Right. That's all you got to do. And if you can't really be helpful, then just either be quiet or go away. Be compassionate, be compassionate, have a little bit of empathy and hold space. That's all I'm asking. (laughs) Exactly. Stop comparing me to the person to the right or to the left or the back to the front. Like the one who got hit by the bus. It's just me. Oh good my times, gosh. good times, good times. <laughs> but they taught me a lot, right? Actually. All those people taught me And I me love so how much. we are both laughing about our. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was dying in a bed. Uh, I was, and now I we're like, eat. I was eat. starting. Oh my god! And the, so in this hospital, 
during that, I was there for, I think, a week. Oh, jeez. And again, blood is okay, but I'm still really sick. So they're not letting me go home. But here's the other part of the miracles of the universe. That week was the same week that the first protease inhibitor was available commercially. What? So, hallelujah. You were getting like, you were like, okay, I hear you. Start taking what I need to take and I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to, I'm going to walk the path that I need to be walking. My new doctor comes in the the hospital. This is the first time I'm meeting this infectious disease guy. And, you know, blood transfusion was successful, etc. But I'm still, I'm taking like seven or eight medications. Ugh. Like 21 pills a day was nauseating. I mean, I'm still not doing well. And I'm beginning to hear that I'm technically not supposed to be alive. They, everyone's like surprised that I'm still alive. Huh, they don't know you very well, do right. they? Right. And I'm like, <laughs> why are you so surprised? <laughs> I understand. At any rate, he comes in, he goes, good news. We've got a pill for you to take that will be taken with AZT and 3TC. I said, okay, and I've been, you know, okay, tell me more, doc. And he says it's this new protease inhibitor, and it's showing a lot of really good results. You know, they've just, it was just finally approved by the FDA, etc. And I looked at him, and I said, okay, then you need to explain to me how each of these medications works. And he looks at me, and his eyes kind of big, and then he literally rolls his eyes at me. Like, and he sighs, like, ugh. And then he, I'm, I'm sure he was thinking, I don't have time and I don't want to do this. She's not even going to, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making up all his story, but the sigh and the eye roll were enough to tell me that he really didn't want to spend his time telling me how these three medications were going to work. But I'm standing, or I'm sitting there rather, I'm not standing, but I'm like, no, I'm serious. You have to tell me because I need to be able to envision what they're doing when I take them because I know it's not going to be fun, but I got to know. He's like... A sigh of resignation. He's like, okay. <laughs> so he tells me how the protease inhibitor works, how, which is, you know, and then how the two NRTIs work, which stands for nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. So I'm now beginning to get schooled in the science, which I find fascinating anyway. And I said, I promise I will take them as long as you tell me what they're doing. As long as, you know, because I'm thinking this is going to be a partnership, dude, because I want to live. And I know that I'm just a patient to you. It's kind of a three-way. You've got the drugs, you've got you, right. and you've got the doctor. Like, right. in order for them to all work together, you also need to know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, don't, leave, don't, don't tell it's me. A don't patronize me just saying, take it because I tell you. Right, of course. That makes me want to punch somebody. Right. You know, explain to me. I don't have an MD by my name, but again, I'm not stupid. You've already had your choice taken from you many times. Right. This is one way for you to actually say... This is my choice to mm-hmm. take this, and I will choose to take this, and yes. it's going to be on my terms, and this is regaining a little bit of my power. Exactly. And my voice. Yeah. So, start taking them. Things are getting a little bit better. I finally go home. I'm still having the fevers, the night sweats. Eating is still a problem. The doctor actually suggested that I eat Snickers to gain weight. No, that's not a good idea. That's not nutritious. I need nutrition, dummy. <laughs> Just like typical doctor. He sees everything through his own little paradigm, but isn't seeing the bigger picture. The other thing that happened in that hospital stay was eating was a serious problem. They would bring in breakfast, take it back, I'm going to throw up. 
Lunch would come, wouldn't eat a bite. Dinner would come, couldn't eat it. I'm surviving on water and, you know, maybe a thing of insure or something. I don't even remember. The nutritionist calls me finally and she says, sweetheart, you have to eat. And I'm thinking, no kidding, lady. Trust me, I would love to eat if everything didn't make me want to throw up. But she says, well, do you have anything you crave? And suddenly the idea of cantaloupes and grapes popped into my head. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't even like cantaloupe that much. But I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. So suddenly, like out of magic, this huge plate of grapes all over the place and cantaloupe <laughs> all cut up comes to my room. I'm oh like, gosh. okay, so I eat it. Within minutes, I get this red ring around my lips. I'm allergic to the cantaloupe. No way. And I'm, I've been allergic to a lot of fruits and nuts all my life, but I had no idea that I was allergic to cantaloupe. But yep, there it is. It's like a freaking clown around my oh, mouth. Oh, no. I call it. I'm like, cancel the cantaloupe. Just send the grapes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, good times. Fun. So how was it like for you? If you had to just uh, tell everybody what it was like actually facing death. Yeah. It was unreal. Because part of me, the, you know, the, the present part, the, the part that deals with the everyday, like I got to brush my teeth, doesn't want to go. I don't want to go. I, I'm too young, and I'm thinking there's still so much I want to do. So I was terrified. But I also knew I might die. I'm, well, everybody's going to die. It's really just a matter of when and how. But, right. <laughs> but I was resisting it at every step of the way because even though it would have been easy to die, that their thought process of, mm -mm, nope, 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 nope. I'm not going to let this little bastard of a virus get me. Right. Wow. I am not going to let that happen. It's and not going to be this way. And yet I knew it was happening every single day. What I didn't know was that there were other women just like me surviving. I had no idea. I'm like, wait, the, the, what? what? <laughs> Intellectually, I knew, of course, there had to be because statistics right right of course there's other women just like me living with this but i didn't know them never heard about them didn't hear any anything about anybody like me on the news or in any kind of story so the idea of dying from this was so foreign I'm like no i can't no i i can't go out like this mm -mm. i gotta have a better epitaph <laughs> was it also because if you would have died, you wouldn't be able to share your story and make another woman who was also in your shoes feel like they weren't alone. I don't think that was my, my, my thought process yet. I think it really was a very selfish will to live and very much, I knew that there was something I was, that was greater that I was meant to do. That part, I was, it was becoming very clear. Was. I didn't know what it was, but I couldn't help feeling there is something much bigger. Well, you had to be able to live first before you could even get right. to that spot, yeah. to get to that place. But the inkling of that was beginning to percolate. Wow. Especially after I made that three-step prayer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
I'm like, okay, the path, that's, there's something there. You know, I didn't, I actually, I didn't even have the cognition to think about it much because there's part that I didn't say was that I was suffering also from age-related dementia, ah. which meant that, you know, normally I can read a book in a night or two, you know, like most people. I couldn't read two paragraphs anymore because I would read the first one and go, okay, you know, Martin is meeting the bookkeeper, whatever the story was. I'd get to paragraph number two and I'd forgotten what paragraph one was about. I'm like, oh, this sucks. I can't even read anymore. And your husband, is he still around? Yeah. We didn't get divorced until nine. We separated in 99, divorced in like 2000. Okay. Okay. But so he's still around, but he's in many ways checked out. Right. He's just, whatever, you know, he's doing, he's, he's there by duty alone at this point. Right. Well, I mean, he, he's having to deal with an awful yeah. lot as and, well. And who can blame? I mean, he, you, know, you know, good guy, no harm, no foul. I bear zero ill will toward him because he, he did what he needed to do for my life. Right. To tell you the truth. <clears throat> yeah. If I'm looking at the bigger picture, if it hadn't been for him, I never would have gotten tested to begin with. Right. Because you were t- getting tested right. Because, right because we were together and we and wanted a family wanted a family so, and he because of his friend recommended that particular doctor and that doctor said I'm testing all of my patients for HIV regardless of what they say their histories were so again if it, I hadn't married him chances are I never would have been tested so I wouldn't have known to walk into that UCLA clinic when I was getting sick. I mean, the whole cascade, when I looked at it from a backwards perspective, was that was why he was in my life. He saved my life. Yeah. It's amazing. So I do want to, in essence of, I do want to um, move forward into, because this is a two-part episode. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else that you need to share prior to two thousand? Yeah, 2000. Yeah, so after the hospital, I really started shifting my thinking. That's when the paradigm shifts. My personal paradigm starts shifting into, okay, I'm not dead yet. And there is a huge distinction between living and simply not dying yet. Wow. And that's when that distinction started to become very clear for me. Say that one more time. There's a difference between, and I want everybody to listen to these words very carefully. There is a big difference between living and simply not dying. Yeah. Here's why this is important. Because for many of us in difficult situations, difficult life situations, we do feel like we're dying. I mean, I did. I felt like my life was just plummeting and I was I was just dying in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, I had lost that whole part of who I thought I was, the wife, the partner, right. the the everything. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I had tried to keep my family together for so many years and just being like that mom and that wife and why yeah. why isn't somebody why isn't he happy with me? Not knowing there was a whole another underlying thing, right? That had nothing to do with you. And nothing to do with me. So, that being said, that was my death, mm-hmm. right? And yes. then my death sentence came during those five days. Right. And then it was exactly that. 
how do I how do I live? There's mm-hmm. a very big difference between not dying mm-hmm. and actually and living. living. And that's when my reinvention started taking place. The reinvention of myself, my identity, my core, my life, what I wanted it to look like was the hardest work I ever did. I think of the physical stuff I went through, nothing, nothing in comparison to the work I had to do to reclaim myself. It's hard work and it's necessary work. Absolutely. And that is the difference because I know for many people, I watch my clients. I watch people who I'm like, come, you know, go on this retreat with us. And Mm -hmm. I see the possibilities, but only they can take the step. Only you could take the step. Only you could also go to that place to say, I'm ready to take the step. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I know for me, too. It was hard. It's terrifying. I was like, had to look so deep within and and go to these places of which I thought I was done with. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, you're not. It's like like emotional (laughs) whack-a-mole. Right. And it's also your awakening. Right. It's that place of... Holy, right. this is who I was meant right. to be. And that will happen only if you're willing to listen. Yes, thousand percent. So that's why I keep going back to the those three prayers I asked for. Yes. In my unknowing, and yet somehow wisdom that luckily I was trusting without realizing I was trusting it, those prayers were continually getting answered and showing up in so many different ways, I'm like, oh, there's that strength. I thought, you know, I thought it was one thing, but it's morphed, and, and what I really needed in terms of strength really is something different, like the strength to reinvent myself, the strength to be so honest with myself when I started asking, how did I get here, to quote an amazing song. But, you know, suddenly it's like, Lisa, how did you get here? I've got to be honest with myself. What choices did I make? What was going on with me that I made those choices? Right. Holding and myself I, responsible, yourself yes, responsible, accountable, accountable yeah. without blame and with forgiveness. Right. No blame, but yep. having to look at that so that I can learn from it. Yep. Oh, I take total responsibility for my choices that I'm like, well, duh. Yeah. This is how I, I like, got oh, here. Okay. Duh. There it is. All right. Oops. <laughs> and yeah. yet we're human. And yet we're human. Yeah. And that's the forgiveness piece too, which right. is why... I'm getting, did I tell you this? Getting forgive. I'm, I'm getting a tattoo. I am with forgive. Yep. Because it's, that's like my, my whole thing. If I didn't get to that place of forgiveness for my own missteps, I would never have gotten. We're harsher on ourselves than anybody else ever will be. Oh, I call myself out all the time. (laughs) I know. Sometimes I am that asshole. Sometimes I am. I get it. Oh, trust me. I'm sure a few people that are listening to this right now will laugh because they all know that I've gotten to that place of pulling myself out. So with that, I do want to um, thank you for being here because we are going to um, stop at this place Mm -hmm. and pick up in the year 2000 in our next episode. Okay. You're, I just want to tell you... An incredibly brave, brilliant woman. And thank you for your honesty and for your for everything that you brought to this because I'm sure that there are so many pieces to this that people are listening to and saying, I've never 
confronted that before. I've never shared that before. I've never gone there before. And now I can because Mm -hmm. you've done this here today. So thank you. Thank you. And with that, everyone, come back for the next episode and we will be sharing um, 2000 to 2020 because it is 2020. It is 2020. It is 2020. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Lisa. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I am grateful to have you here and I would love to invite you over to sarahsholtoncrans.com to grab my free seven steps to a joy-filled life. I share these seven steps from my own heart, soul, and experience. These steps transformed my own life from victim to survivor. Also, please, let's all be a ripple effect of change in today's world. I ask of you to please share this podcast with others that may need to be inspired or who need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review, go to my Instagram or Facebook page, and let me know what you think. I love hearing from each and one of you. I love sharing your thoughts, messages, and inspiring words. Because we are not alone in this world, friends. Let's keep the ripple moving. It begins with each one of us. I love you and have a great remainder of your day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.